Lou, what's going on, my friend? I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Congratulations on your book, Vanished in Vermilion, the real story of South Dakota's most infamous cold case. First book? It is my first book. I've been writing for uh, just about 20 years at this point, but all journalism, you know, either for television or web or for print. This is my first full-length book. One thing you didn't expect in writing a book, you're like, wow, I didn't think blank. I didn't expect it to be so hard to stay organized because by nature, I'm such an organized person. Mm -hmm. And in my job as a reporter, I'm probably one of the most, my peers would call me one of the most organized people. But as I got going into it and I'm writing off of like a Microsoft Word document, all of a sudden I'm lost in it. And then I had to literally start searching for what other writers say about organization. And then I found a computer program that's called Scrivener that is made for that purpose. Oh, wow. And so, so once I was able to do that, it sped up the process big time because I wasn't continuously getting lost in my own book. Have you seen someone reading your book in public yet? Yes. Um, not not like random enough that I like take a picture of it for social media or anything like that. But I've been in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is, you know, kind of close to where it took place. Been at a bookstore and somebody's like carrying it up to the front to, to buy it. And I say, hey, I heard that one is really good. Oh, did you approach them? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> did you tell them that you were the author? Though? I did. I did. That is, yeah. oh, that's a really cool story. Yeah, that's always fun. I know you lived all over the country. You're a Minnesota dude. What's the most iconic Minnesota food? Is it the Juicy Lucy or is that just a tourist thing? It is probably. I mean, so that so here's the thing. We I grew up in Minnesota, but my wife and I moved to Tucson, Arizona, which is the best Mexican food in the country. Okay. And then we moved to Buffalo, New York, which wings and pizza phenomenal. Even, you know, Italian food across the board, fantastic. Minnesota is not like known mm -hmm. for anything. So like there's the stereotypical stuff because I'm Norwegian. There's lefse and lutefisk. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's essentially uh, lefse is kind of like it looks like a tortilla, but mm -hmm. you, it's made from potato batter and, and you sprinkle sugar on it after it's baked. And then lutefisk is a fish that yeah. doesn't taste oh. good at all. So those are the stereotypical things. We don't really eat that except for kind of novelty, you know. Um, with family, I, I get lefse is actually good, but mm -hmm. um, Juicy Lucy is kind of like the only food that's like original to Minnesota, I think. And how about the most famous Minnesotian? Is it Prince Bob Dylan? Oh, is it Prince? I'm going to say Prince. Stuff? Yeah, okay. I, I was going to say, or oh, Jesse Prince the Body died Ventura. <laughs> two years after I moved back here and covering his death, it was just absolutely crazy. The people that came from all over the world. To Paisley Park, which is kind of the compound where he lived. That's what they call it, Paisley Park. Like I met people from Australia, New Zealand, um, Europe, like anywhere you name it. Like people came from that, like a pilgrimage after Prince died to see the place where he lived. And so that struck me. You know, Dylan, maybe you could say Dylan is more famous, but I think Dying Young kind of like creates uh, a legend that, you know, somebody that live a, lives a full life, when Dylan dies, you know, it'll be sad, but there won't be people coming from all over the world to Minnesota. It's funny you mentioned Prince, because I'm not the biggest music guy, and I didn't mm -hmm. know, I listen, I know he's famous, I know he was iconic. When he died, on a small level, people would go to Prince Street in New York, and they every day they were putting stuff on the subway, because it was Prince, and they covered up the streets, so, and I'm like, why are people just lined up there? So that was, and they had all purple over there. The New York. Well, I hadn't even heard purple. that one. That's crazy. Yeah, so Prince Street's uh, subway station, they did all purple for like two days in honor of him. Like, wow, the MTA changed it for Prince. It, it kind of blew my mind how huge he was, and I felt ignorant. I'm like, I didn't know he was that big, but he was, man. Yeah, and you know, speaking of Prince Pizza, I did this just because this popped in my mind. Or speaking of Prince Street, Prince Pizza is one of my favorite places in New York. It hands down is one of the best pizzas in New York. And when, <laughs> when you get here, you and I are going to get it. Yeah, sounds good. Author, podcast host, father, husband, award-winning reporter. Am I missing anything? Uh, fantasy football, elite mind is what <laughs> I tell people. <laughs> the number, the thing that you can brag about that nobody cares about. Yeah, are you a huge sports fan or just a football? You know, I I've always been a big sports fan, and what it just as life gets more busy and stuff like that. I've whittled it down to I pretty much only watch the NFL at this point. Like I'm still a Twins fan mm -hmm. and. You know, I'm getting back into the following the team a little bit more now. 
NFL is really the only thing that I follow extensively. But now that my my daughter is 10 years old, my son is six years old, I'm coaching basketball. So I'm really excited about that. Were so, you ever a basketball fan or are you more? You getting yeah, into I mean, now, I, right? I did an internship for the Timberwolves back in 03. And that was the year that KG and the Timberwolves were yeah. amazing. They lost to the Spurs. And the Spurs, you know, had those amazing years with Tim Duncan and uh, David Robinson and everybody. So if one sporting team in your life can win a championship, it's the Vikings, hands down. Hands down, hands down. <laughs> but I can remember the Twins winning in 87 and 91, so I was a kid at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was a special memory, and it's incredible that it's been that long since the Minnesota sports team has won. Your book is incredible. Five stars, on Goodreads, amazing reviews. Last time you read a review. <laughs> There was a there was a pretty good recent one on Amazon that said calling all true crime fans and that that was that was pretty cool. Um, when it comes to negative reviews, so I I work in the news business, so I, I'm probably more used to negative feedback than like your average author, especially your average first time author. So it doesn't bother me too bad. But there's been a couple one star reviews that very clearly were written by people somewhat related to the people in the book who okay. get criticized you know, whether through, whether they were friends or what, based, especially based on the things that they complain about. It's like, okay, <laughs> you, you must be related to so-and-so, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so that, that makes it a little easier to dismiss the criticism. First time author. Did you model your book after any other authors? No, I didn't. And I, I made a podcast a couple of years ago as well. Um, it's called 88 days, the Jamie Kloss story. She was a girl that was kidnapped. Her parents murdered and she escaped after 88 days from captivity from her kidnapper. Um, when I did that, that's when true crime podcasts were just mm-hmm. exploding at that time. And I did not model it. I, in, in fact, I purposely like stopped listening to podcasts in order to, to just make it as original as I could. Oh, interesting. When it came to books, too. I mean, that the hardest part for me was figuring out the order of the narrative. Like, where do you start? Like, is do you go chronological or... Do I kind of start with the ending and, and tell the story, you know, assuming people know what happened to Pam Jackson, Sherry Miller? Um, and and the biggest question that I needed to come up with right away was, do I include myself in the book or not? Because I, I reported on it actively between 2005 and 2008 when it was revived as a cold case. And then obviously I did a lot of reporting in the process mm-hmm. of writing this book. And I, I chose to write the book in three parts because there's there's two distinct investigations the original 1971 investigation and then when it was revived as a cold case in 2004 so those are two distinct parts and then you know things come naturally in threes so i made a third part and i title it the truth when i actually do bring myself in and i open the curtain a little bit more and explain my role in in the prior reporting that you've read about in the book and then also the reason i did that was as a news reporter, I've really gotten into what I call process reporting, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you watch a news report in general, you don't know, you know, you, you only know what you're told. You don't know what you don't know. And that's, you don't get a full picture that way. I like to tell people, here's what we know. And here's the questions that are still unanswered. Like, you know, and I kind of bring the viewer, the reader along the ride with me so that they get a, a full contextual view of whatever issue I'm covering on the news. And so I kind of brought that approach into the book and I talked about, you know, what I was able to find in my own investigation. And then I also included transcripts even of some of my conversations with people to just show how frustrating it is when somebody has so much tunnel vision and refuses to change their mind or their opinion on something. I was really intrigued with this book and I'm intrigued by all books that authors write like, hey, why did you write a book on X? Yours was even more fascinating to me because you've been on the forefront of groundbreaking stories and there has to be a time, and I love having reporters on because it's like you're into this huge story. Don't you want to do a deep dive, but tomorrow's the next story, and you already forget about the last one. What was it so much about this story that just captivated you? Like, I'm going down this rabbit hole. I'm investing years of my life to write about it. Well, a couple things. And on that on that note, first, what you're saying. So I, I covered the Derek Chauvin trial mm-hmm. every single day, every single minute of the trial. I was like – we aired it live on TV. Yeah, you so were the I guy. Was, I, I, I remember the, seeing you. You the were the play guy. Play-by-play guy. You know, yeah. like when they when they turn the microphones off and they're, the attorneys are having a huddle, I'm kind of, I bring my microphone up and explain what they're likely arguing about. <laughs> but that being said, you know, that story is so saturated that do you really want to read a book about that? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I mean, when things are oversaturated, I, I think about it differently. Like, I don't want to go to the bookstore 
and find a book on the thing that I already know the most about the thing that's been covered and overdone and oversaturated. Like the thing that I tell people, this is one of the most interesting stories that you've never heard about. And so on that note, just like you just said too, when, when I covered the cold case and at the point that the cold case falls apart back in 2008, I did a follow-up story the next day, but then I was done. You know, it was just like, okay, that's old news. Now you got to start looking at something else. And that really bothered me. It's like, gosh, I, I invested so much time and emotion because I always become close with the people that I interview, you know, in, in, a, in a case like this or a story like this, you know, similar to a, a police investigator when you, you feel like you don't want to let down the family. It's kind of like that. Um, and I'm not doing the investigation, but I'm doing the coverage and I'm, I'm you know, helping things be easier for them to understand and break things down. And I want to see them get justice. And then when that is denied, then, you know, I feel bad, even though it is, is no doing of my own, but I, it was really hard to let go. And Pam Jackson, one of the two girls who disappeared in 1971, her brother-in-law became a friend of mine. He's an older guy. And I, so I'm in my twenties, he's 70 something. He would take me out for breakfast and, wow. and tell me, you know, what he's hearing about the case because in South Dakota, it was, you know, so tight lipped and nothing is public information. So I would just take anything I could get. And so developed a friendship and, um, and I, my wife and I invited him and his wife to our wedding. So a couple of wow. years after the case had completely fallen apart, they were still in our lives. They were at my wedding. So fast forward to, um, 20, 2013, I'm working in Buffalo, New York. I get a call from that guy's name is Dexter Brock telling me that they found the Studebaker that Pam and Sherry disappeared in. And I was instantly brought back in, but I'm in Buffalo and it's not my story anymore. I'm, I'm following it from afar. And when I watched the news conference that the attorney general did where, you know, quote unquote, we were getting all the answers. I was like, wait a second. What about all that stuff that Dexter told me about wow. you know, when I was having these breakfasts with, with him at, at IHOP in Sioux Falls, you know? So I, I, I couldn't let go of, you know, like we just, it, it was kind of like the politician thing where things are just going to be glossed over now. You know, this is nobody's fault. This, this whole investigation went sideways, but everybody tried their best and let's just all move on because now we know what happened to them. And I just was like, wait a second. It's not about the answer of what happened. It's the answer of how it happened. And so they didn't tell us how it happened. And I think that was very important to the public because there was a man that was charged with murder in this case who, after the fact, that's hard for people to let go of. Like there were still people that thought that his family helped cover up a murder and they were living with that, you know, and I, I'm from a small town, so I understand how small towns work when when there's a, a preconceived notion about somebody it's hard to shake and so i knew that there were misconceptions out there they weren't going away i knew that i had the ability to be able to tell this story in full and i thought that people would enjoy it and that's how i wanted to dig into this case so we just mentioned 71 murder studebaker we mentioned all of it so let me see if i'll give a quick synopsis 1971 two girls um, they go, they're going to a keg party. They're mm -hmm. driving behind a car full of three other dudes. They're going to a keg party. The dudes turn right. The two girls in the Studebaker turn left. They're never seen again. Correct? That's basically right. So that's how the book starts. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I, I knew nothing of this case. I'm like, I'm all in. Then we get to part two. And a man who's in prison is charged with murder. I'm like, wait, we solved this right now. And then part three is the truth. What a roller coaster of emotions. Did you feel the roller coaster too as you got involved? Like absolutely, it? absolutely. And I, you know, and I have to tell you, when I got the phone call saying that the murder charges were going to be dropped against David Licken, I I was angry and sad. And it wasn't because, you know, I wanted this guy to be wrongly something pinned on him wrongly. It was because I wanted that that answer for the victims. And as a human being, you want answers to questions that you have. So it was, yeah, there were ups and downs. And I I really thought we would never find out what really happened. Was it difficult for you to juggle this? You're going deep dive. You're a detective looking into this, doing interviews from all over, which has blown my mind because you're interviewing people who were 18, 19 years old at the time, 30, 40 years later, and doing your day job. How hard was that to juggle? 
Very hard. Um, luckily, I've, I've become very good at covering crime in courts, and that's what most of my news stories at my day job center around. And so I'm able to navigate that, and it's not like your mind is on two completely different things. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, doing a, a feature on a bunch of kids and then I'm going back to this heavy thing. So it was, it was, it was kind of in the, in the right mindset a lot of the time. Um, as far as the logistics, though, that was a whole other story because I live in the Minneapolis St. Paul Metro, and that is a four hour drive from where this happened. Luckily, my wife's parents are from Sioux City, Iowa, which is about an hour from where this happened. And we go there several times during the year. Um, and, you know, my family was gracious enough to give me up for a day of every trip that we made back so I could spend a day, you know, on the scene floating around and getting what I needed to get. When Pam and Cheryl go missing in 1971, initially, how wasn't it a big story? You kind of basically set that up. The girls went missing and it was I know now it's completely different. If someone goes missing for an hour, it's all over Twitter. How wasn't it a big story back then in a small town? Just a combination of things where even though it was a small town, there still are different levels of society. They were not, for example, the principal's kid, or they weren't the star athletes or the cheerleaders. Pam was from a farm, and there seemed to be um, somewhat of a divide between the rural farmers and the people that lived in the city. And then Sherry came from what they would call a broken family. I mean, her mom was divorced from her dad. Her dad was very abusive. Uh, they were all alcoholics. Sherry herself wasn't, but her, her parents were, her mom, and then her stepdad. And there was abuse, and it just was a horrible home life. And in 1971, she would be the perfect candidate to run away from home and just make a go of it somewhere else. And so when the initial sheriff dismissed, you know, this notion that they disappeared, he said, well, you know, Sherry, of course she would want to run away. And Pam, she probably would too, because her parents are just strict farmers that their life revolves around the church. And, you know, she probably would want to break free of that too and be a, be a teenager, you know, in the early seventies. So there was kind of this notion that they probably had run away. And once that gets seated, you know, let's say you're another parent and the sheriff is telling everyone, don't freak out. They just ran away. Like you don't necessarily always ask for, you know, proof when it's an authority figure telling you something, take it at face value. So then parents are telling their kids, yeah, Pam and Sherry ran away. And so this notion just gets spoon fed to everybody. And even if they don't believe it, you know, there's an uncomfortable feeling, but also it's like, well, I don't know better than they do, you know, and if that's what they say happened, I guess that's what happened. The sheriff, he hindered the investigation big time. Like you get frustrated of the incompetence of him back then. Like, yeah, they ran away. And then he kind of like stuck to his guns. Like, nope, they ran away and never really gave up on it. And like you said, if they, t it's a small town. No, they ran away. Trust me, I'm the sheriff. Like people did. Exactly. And he, yeah, you're right about how frustrating it is. And that's the basic summation of the initial investigation is that nothing was done. I was a little nervous when the book came out that, you know, I was going to get some blowback from people who's, who knew him, mm -hmm. Sheriff Arnie Nelson, and I just got it all wrong. He's a great guy, and you just painted him like this. I've actually heard almost nothing, but you've got it all right. <laughs> in fact, I found out after the fact that I said in the book that he retired at a certain point. Mm -hmm. He actually was forced into retirement because he was stealing from the county. And he was given kind of the ultimatum of retire or be prosecuted. The investigation itself was so short. And I don't want to give away too many details to play spoiler because people have to read the book. Because like you said, a story no one knows that's just it's sick. But because of a nonsense picture, they kind of closed it. And I'm reading it. I'm like, if someone says they're missing, we're not allowed. I'm, I know New York's completely different. We're not allowed to close the case until we see them or speak to them or have confirmation. Right. How just like, no, we think we saw a picture from a different state. They're good. Like, how quick was the case closed? Within a, within a couple of years. With, I mean, less than that. Um, the, the picture issue didn't come until like November of that first year. They've disappeared on Memorial Day weekend. So it was several months later. It, it was actually, I believe it was a November concert, but then it was the next January that the mom developed the pictures. And when you look at the picture, there's a girl that has the same haircut as Pam Jackson and the similar glasses, which are just 
essentially big horn rimmed plastic glasses that countless people had. <laughs> and unfortunately, the parents, um, you know, them wanting to believe that she's okay played against them. Because when they showed that picture to the parents, do you think this is Pam? Yes, I absolutely, I think that is her. Well, in their minds, they're saying that because they want police to go find that girl yeah. and, and make sure it is her. But in the police's minds, they're like, okay, well, obviously she willingly ran away then. Case closed. Yeah, the kid ran away. It's not getting in touch with his parents. Yeah. The case and, was, and, and one yeah. more thing to add to that, there was a runaway from Vermilion, which is a small town, just a couple thousand people. There was a high school girl who ran away to a hippie commune. And, but she did write letters back to her parents to make, you know, make sure that they know she's okay. And, you know, when one in a small town, when one thing like that happens, it creates this perception that that anybody could do that. And so, well, you, you know, it happened to that one girl, she ran away to a hippie commune. So that must be what they did. Forgetting the fact that, okay, Pam, if not Sherry, but Pam and Sherry both yeah. would have contacted their parents to say, don't worry, we're fine. And that's why I included all that stuff about Sherry's grandmother was in the hospital. She was dying of cancer. Her grandmother was her caretaker, caretaker that year. So she would have run away with her dying grandmother in the hospital. At the very least, she would have given a call to, you know, let my grandma know that I'm fine. Because she visited her the night of the disappearance. The night of the disappearance. So now the case is closed. Everyone moves on with their life and that's it. And then not to get too much into it, how did the cold case come about and pull this case? Like, hey, oh, we have this case. Well, this was something that I really emphasized in the book that not many people realize that it was a journalist actually that revived interest in it. And it was um, by pure chance, this journalist on the 20 year anniversary and journalists like us are always looking for a good story, of course, and he's having beers in a bar and there's a woman crying in the back and he says, hey, what's wrong with her? Well, it was Sherry Miller's parents bar and Sherry's stepfather says, yeah, that's that's my wife. You know, her it's the 20 year anniversary of her daughter disappearing. And so this journalist was interested and he really went in depth, talked to everybody. I mean, that's the, you know, when you, when you get to the cold case investigation, you notice like there's an emphasis on the tactics they used and less of an emphasis on just talking to people. And I'm, I'm a big fan of investigators that just talk to as many people as they can, because then you're able to get facts nailed down and use your gut. Well, this journalist talked to everybody that he could, that would know anything. And that included the three boys that saw them last on the night they disappeared. And that was the only recorded interview that those three boys did. Which is nuts. It's crazy. One of them was never interviewed by police. And they essentially just relied on the story from one of those three boys. The, the, th the third one passed away at a certain point along the way. Cold case opens up and a phone call and all this stuff, a party line eventually leads to a dude who's in jail being arrested. When that happens, huge news there. Yeah. And I'll just back up for a second because it wasn't like the cold case opened up and the evidence led to him. They opened the cold case because they had him in mind as a good suspect. They're like, they, they started this cold case unit and they said, you know, email me all your cases, guys, you know, the ones that you know of around the state that are unsolved. And somebody emailed this one in and said, you know, these girls have been missing since 1971. And we have this horrible guy that committed these rapes and he's in prison right now. Well, he lived very close to the spot that they were last seen. And he would have been the same age as them, 16, almost 17 years old. Maybe he did it. He probably has it in him because he is a sexual offender against women. He's already in prison for doing these crimes. And, you know, maybe we could, you know, figure out a way to get him now. And so they start the cold case investigation with him as the one and only suspect looking only into ways that he may or may not have been involved. Complete tunnel vision. Complete. I mean, by definition. They make the arrest on him. And well, I don't want to give too much away how they make the arrest. You you were like, oh, he did it then, right? When you got involved, like, oh, this guy did it. You were pretty con uh, convinced? Yeah, I would say so. Like I, when I was hired at the station, it's called Kelloland News in, in South Dakota. I was kind of briefed on all the big stories, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the big search, the big search warrants of, of the farm that he grew up on had already been executed. And so I was essentially told... Like you, you have to know the name David Licken, that's his name. And you have to be aware that he's probably going to be charged with murder at some point. And so just be ready for it so you can report the heck out of it when it happens. So when it happened, you know, I already had kind of that 
preconceived notion that why would they be targeting him so much if he had nothing to do with it? And it had nothing to do with the uh, police leaking stuff that we found bones in the yard and stuff like that's like dirty tactics. It is. Yeah. And, and it's they, they took advantage of the fact that very little is allowed to be public information in South Dakota. So, you know, w- when you do a search warrant and I, I don't remember quite how it is in New York, but like here in Minnesota, they have to publicly file the search warrant affidavit. Mm-hmm. And then along with it, the receipt, which shows or the inventory, everything that's taken. So in South Dakota, and of course, you can always seal a search warrant, which makes sense because you don't want to give away, you know, to the suspect and what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. In South Dakota, they can't seal the search warrant inventory, the things they take from a place. They can only seal the affidavit, which has the reasons why they're searching. So when they filed the receipt, it says that they took bones in a purse in female clothing and photographs and newspaper clippings. And so it just seems like, wow, they really, they really found it there. They really got it. Oof. When the charges were dropped, were you floored? Like, okay, wait a minute. We found bones. We found, we probably found the girl's clothing and, you know, Pam's uh, pocketbook. Were you floored? Like, oh my God, are we back to square one again? Yeah, I was absolutely floored. And, and, you know, my mind initially goes to, you know, is this a temporary thing? Like, do they just need to get their yeah. ducks in a row and then they'll they'll get them charged again and this will keep moving forward? It was hard to accept that this is over. I was frustrated with the incompetence of, and it's hard for me to fathom by living in New York City my whole life, how this wasn't solved in a weekend. Like, that, That's how it should have been, for sure. And now let me, they found the car. How didn't they do a grid search? Like, and I know I'm using New York terms, like you go block by block, building by building. You know, the car was found, and we're not playing spoiler because everyone knows seven was it seven miles from the house? What, what was it from where they wanted to be? Oh, from what? So they were trying to go to a gravel pit party. Yes, and the the car was found only a hundred yards from where they were should have turned to go into the party, like the driveway of this. So it was it was beyond close. It was not my. It was less than a mile away. I I can't fathom how it's possible. Like and. I'm telling you, I even I, I did Google Maps. Like afterwards, you had me full blown all in. I'm like, I don't understand how it wasn't searched. Can you like explain how it wasn't searched that area because it was so close? So it all goes back to that initial sheriff not believing that they that anything other than running away happened. So the parents went to him the day after they disappeared, which would have been a Sunday before Memorial Day, and the sheriff obviously did not leave the office. Mm-hmm. And when they went back the next day, they asked the deputy who was sitting at the office, did you hear anything? Did you find out anything about the girls? And he goes, what girls? The sheriff didn't even tell his coworkers. So that means nobody was looking. And going back to the parents, they knew that their their kids were missing, but they had no idea where. They didn't know that they were last seen by these boys who were trying to get to the party. They didn't even know really that they were trying to get to a party. At this point, the rumors have already taken over. And in the Vermilion, South Dakota area, the the Missouri River runs through there. The kids usually party at the river. There's various spots along the river, which are the party spots. So by the time rumor has taken over, the rumor that they were headed to a party on on the Missouri River had taken over this idea that they were trying to find this random party, um, you know, the one that they really were trying to find at the gravel pit. So there were people going out to the Missouri River and looking. They were just looking in the complete wrong spot. But the place where they were found, a random civilian, a random dude just went and found it. He's like, I'm going to go find the girls today. I'm going to search over here. Other people have been to that area. Was the, you, sent, you put a picture in your book and it was like the tires were facing up and like, oh, yes. you can see it. It seemed pretty visible, but no one found it for 45 years. I'm like, how? Like, I, I, I can't wrap my head around it. So the main reason, and this is kind of my... Uh, you know, summation after after everything that I've learned about this and research, it, it went into a creek. Mm-hmm. And when you think of like a car being underwater, you think of it just sitting, like sitting there at the, the bottom of a lake. And if you dove down there, you would see it. Or if the if the water level went down, it would be exposed. But in a creek or river, there's current and that pushes sediment as well. So it wasn't just underwater, but it was underground. It pushed silt or sand, sandy dirt on top of it. 
that wouldn't be an immediate thing that happens, but it happens over time. So in years after it went in there, if the water level went down, it wouldn't look like a car. It would look like a sandbar, which is essentially like a, a pile of sand on the ground of the, of the creek or the river. So I'm sure that it was exposed that much, but if the tires in the carriage of the car were already buried, they wouldn't have seen those things. And so the picture that I included in the book, there were a couple different things that happened where there was high water flow, like a, a flood where the water's really flowing, which probably washed off a portion of that. And then the water level would go down in a drought. And then when it, then there would be another flood, do more of that washing. And then when it went back down again, then finally there were some tires exposed. Your reporting and writing was, was chilling when you were saying what they found out of the car, when you mentioned the, the license and this, like it was really chilling. And then you get heartbroken as a reader, you know, listen, I read a lot of true crime. I was like devastated. I'm like, wow, they were so close to the family who was searching for them every day. It hurt me as the reader to do yeah. it. Were you there for the evacuate, uh, excavation when they excavation, took everything out? No, I wasn't personally there, but thankfully the investigators that took part in that talked with me very extensively. And that was extremely helpful because I, I really didn't have my mind wrapped around how that worked. It wasn't very well reported. Mm -hmm. And they, they essentially layer by layer removed sand and then found what they found within it. And that includes jewelry, um, purse, driver's license. And this was actually really important because there rumors persisted that, you know, what if, you know, what if uh, David Licken still murdered them, but then put that car in there to make it look like it wasn't a murder. Like, you know, that's a, and it actually is a, is a real possibility oh, course, before yeah, yeah. they know they have to narrow that, they have to rule that out. But one of the girls had pantyhose on that were nylon synthetic material that did not deteriorate over the decades. And every single bone from the legs and the feet were still in the pantyhose. And a rapist would not put the pantyhose back on the victim after he rapes her. And so that right there is one of many things that rules out that possibility. You interviewed David, right? Yep. How's your relationship with him? Not that you guys are friends. Was he, what's his reception on the book? Has he reached out to you about the book afterwards? Oh yeah, no? he, he's very happy. I mean, you know, he is very egotistical. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Well, he's, he's an intelligent man, you made it seem in the book. He's intelligent um, and, and very socially challenged. One way that I would describe him to people is like, if you didn't know that he committed these crimes and you're just having a regular conversation, he's, he's kind of a fun guy to talk to because he's very intelligent on a wide variety of topics. But then if he was ever released from prison, I would want to keep him a million miles away yeah. from my mother or anyone else that he potentially could victimize at this point, as did I just you, wouldn't trust it. Did you enjoy the process of writing a book? I absolutely did. And you know, and a little bit more about uh, David Licken, because mm -hmm. the, I, I had tours of the South Dakota prison before, um, when I was a reporter there in, in South Dakota. And so I'd been in there before, but when I went to visit him, you know, all I could think about as you go, it's like going deeper and deeper into a dungeon and all these doors lock behind you and lock behind you. And you realize like, I'm not, I, I'm not getting out. The only reason I'm getting out of here is because they're going to let me yeah. out of here. Like it's, it's pretty crazy. And I, I think that that's the best place for him um, to have structure and, you know, it's it, it it's it's obviously he wishes that he could be released, but I don't think that's the best thing for society either. And within the prison, I think he feels like, even though he did these other horrible things, he's at least been vindicated now on these murder accusations, and his family is not getting the same suspicion cast on them that they always have. You know, I've I've just felt really bad for his brother Kerwin, who still lives oh. in the, on the same farmstead, and basically had to deal with his neighbors looking at him like he's a killer for the last. Uh, since 2004, it's it's already been 20 years almost. One question about the police files, because you got them. Now police files are beyond, and like you said, you, you do the Minnesota police up there. You see how detailed every police report is. How little information was on the initial reports? Did you ever get to see them? The yeah, the initial people? reports were really nothing. Um, I mean, there weren't like reports which are like a summation of what they just did. Instead, the, the uh, police chief at the time included his letters, that were the letters that were written back and mm -hmm. forth. So I was able to read the correspondence between okay. him and the DCI, which is the, the state investigative agency. 
So I was able to put the pieces together that way, but there's not even like, you know, an initial interview summary or anything like that. There's really nothing. There's, there's a lot of clippings and a lot of like, you know, a Jane Doe was found here about 17 years old and they would clip it out. They would save it. And they would get a lot of these things over the fax machine or whatever it was at the time or in the mail, I guess. That, that's basically all the original file was. You made an interesting comment that just came back to me early on when you said uh, so many stories you do. You don't want to do a story on George Floyd because there's a million things written about it. And who wants to read about it? Right now, if I went to a book company, I'm like, hey, I got a new angle on Ted Bundy. It's like, bro, write the book. I know. That's Not, a, that's a, it's the sad part. That's the, that's the hard well, that's part. What I was, was going to ask you. And then you go with the story that I haven't heard of, South Dakota. Would you kind of just dismiss like, no, nah, bro, no one knows about the story? Or was it complete opposite? Oh, finally something new. No, you're right. It was it was very hard to get it published. It was hard to find an agent in the first place. It was hard to find a publisher. Thankfully, the editor that that picked it up, um, you know, New York lady who happened to remember the story when it happened. Oh, because it was national news when the Studebaker was found. Okay, it just was. You know, everybody forgets about a story the day after they read it. She happened to remember it, and that piqued her interest, and she read my my book proposal and was all in on it. And so it was very hard. Like, oh. you know, I talked to like another publisher and they would be like, um, so is this like the one story that everyone in the state of South Dakota knows about? And I'm like, well, even not necessarily. I mean, it, from that part of South Dakota, mm -hmm. for sure. And they're like, well, you're not really selling it. I'm like, you just got to trust me. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. It is so crazy. The things that were done in this investigation that would never be done today. I hope. Yeah. You, know? you, you hope. So it was difficult. Now, I have a lot of true crime authors on, and I know it's probably a generic question. Option for a movie, Netflix. Have you got any kind of uh, interest? Yes, I had some great discussions for um, what was going to start as a podcast with the option to to try to sell it as a streaming show. Okay. And that was interrupted um, during the writer's strike. And so that that played a, a negative role in... Um, I'm I'm hoping now that the writer strike has been resolved and hopefully the SAG after strike will be resolved soon then we'll start having those discussions again but it's it's kind of the same issue where you know people will watch the Netflix Ted Bundy show even though I hated that one um but or not not Dumber, even the Ted Bundy the Teddy Bundy one was was okay the Jeffrey Dahmer one was the one that I just couldn't stay I just I don't I'm not interested in this anymore it's that's why the the case from Baltimore was more interesting on the podcast because nobody knew about it, you know, or the making the murderer from Wisconsin. The ones that you haven't heard about are more interesting. And um, but the way that I see this, I see it better as a screenplay than as a series, because in the vein of the show Fargo, if you've ever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they made a movie Fargo and then they had a TV show where things are just so bizarre are yeah. that you wonder you look around and wonder if you're the only sane person here that's kind of like how i see it as a screenplay as a movie you know like at one person who thinks they're doing the right thing you know but then all the uh, evidence that's coming at them that they have to deal with is like you know i just can't believe that this is real you hypnotized her and got her to say what now yeah. <laughs> and and um oh now there's another family member coming forward and saying that they that they know this um you know, just just the things that that came out in the course of this, and when you're talking about hypnotizing people to remember things that happened 30 and 40 years ago, and then just rolling with it, it just is kind of like the Twilight Zone type situation. And I think that's why it would play as one of those movies where you just feel like this can't be real. This can't be real. Oh my God, it is real. Do you feel that? Oh, would you do the podcast since you already did one? Would you want to do it or no? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, with my day job, I don't have a ton of time to to do that. But yeah, I mean, I, I narrated the audio book. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's how it would have to go. The crazy thing is all these police reports and stuff that I got, the average person does not have access to them. Mm -hmm. So this is basically, you know, my story. There's not somebody. Yeah, this, is, just, this is your baby. You're the guy now. No one can go and copy it or do a hatchet job or anything like that. Not to be generic, but like a tattoo. You do one tattoo, you want many of them. You did one book. Do you have an idea for another one? Did you like the process or are you going to hang? Yeah, I would love to I would love to continuously be writing a book. The way that I do my stuff, it works best when the people involved are participating. Mm -hmm. You know, you can always write a book about somebody that doesn't want you to do it and they can't really stop you from doing it, but it's so much better if you get people on board. 
And that kind of goes to my, you know, as a reporter, convincing people, you know, to talk if they want to talk is part of my job. And so I have a couple of really good ideas and I just don't have the people fully convinced to do it yet. So there, so I haven't started on the next thing yet. Back to you real quick reporting. You went Minnesota, South Dakota, Arizona, Buffalo. Why changes? And I'm going to ask a silly question because I don't know this. Is it like you get drafted to a new city or you're like, hey, you got, you want to check out Arizona? Let me send my resume out there. It's sort of like that, but it, 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 especially when you're talking 15 minutes, 15, 15 years ago, such a competitive industry. You know, I sent resumes and applications a lot of places before, you know, I was hired in Sioux Falls. And it's kind of like working up the markets, you know, if you want to make it to the bigger market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I sent out resumes after I'd been in Sioux Falls for three years and I got interest in Tucson. And so, you know, then you go through the process, you get hired there. That's a bigger market than Sioux Falls. Buffalo is a bigger market than Tucson. And then Minneapolis is a bigger market than Buffalo. So it's kind of like moving up the markets, you know, but then you still have to convince people to like you and hire you. But you've been in Minnesota for a minute. You're going to stay there. You yeah, home now? So we have kids, uh, yeah. my wife, Emily and I, and uh, the grandparents are within driving distance. So it's, it's home. This is where we want to be. Any other ideas besides this one for another podcast? Because you did 88 Days, which was awesome, by the way. I'm two episodes in because once I knew you were coming on, I, <laughs> I jumped in. And that story is just wild. Any other ideas for a new podcast or no? Well, not on the on the podcast thing, but I'm excited to be starting a half-hour true crime show for CARE 11 for the station I work at. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be called Unsolved, but the un is kind of in parentheses because some of them are solved and some of them are unsolved. And are they just from Minnesota or are they from all over? Mostly ones that we've covered. So Minnesota and Western Wisconsin, for the most part, um, the first episode was, you know, a pretty crazy case that um, I covered in the Red Wing area, which is pretty close to the Wisconsin border. It was a um, mysterious mystery of, it's called the mystery of the babies in the water. Like someone found uh, a newborn, literally just born infant floating in the Mississippi River. And it's like, okay, what happened here? What is this? And, you know, there's a, there's a word for it. And, um, but it's, it's, uh, uh, I'm not on the tip of my tongue. I can't think what it's called, but it's where a mother kills her own newborn, you know, right after birth. It's a, it's a very rare, you know, criminal phenomenon, but it went unsolved. And then a couple of years later, it happened again. And a couple of years later, it happened again, all around the Mississippi river in the community of Red Wing. And so it was this crazy mystery that just, you know, saddened and, and mystified the community for, uh, 1999 was the first one that happened. So, you know, more than 20 years until finally they, um, used a genetic genealogy, investigative genetic genealogy to use the family tree. Oh my God. Situation, you know, from the, from the remains of the babies to figure out who the mom is and then, and then how to go after her and how to prove, you know, all this stuff. So it, it was a very interesting case that I covered here. Um, the, uh, the suspect was convicted and sentenced to prison uh, earlier this year. And so that's, that's the first episode. Oh my the, God. The twist and the unsolved portion is that one of the babies wasn't hers. So there still is a suspect out there. How, now, how can I watch it or check it out? I mean, it'll, it'll be coming out. Um, so we're getting a couple episodes done before it's officially released. Okay. But it'll be on YouTube, on our Care 11 YouTube Oof. channel. And then the Care 11 Plus app, you know, when you think about the future of broadcast television, a lot of these stations, you know, at a, at a certain point, you know, fewer and fewer people are using antennas and, and broadcast TV on antennas. So, you know, the future might be this these uh, essentially digital channels, like when you have an Amazon Fire Stick and mm-hmm. you download the different, you know, so there's a Care 11 digital channel called Care 11 Plus. And it'll be on there as well as other ones around the country that are from our same ownership group. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. One, a couple of the little quick questions because you were the George Floyd guy. You were the guy on TV, the guy with yep. the great, great hair. How's the relationship with the people there and the police? Has it gotten better? Because I know it's tumultuous. Is it gotten better? A little trust? Is it still? Eh. It, it, it's it's hard. I mean, it, it kind of cut both ways because outside of the city of Minneapolis and, and St. Paul at a lesser level in more rural areas, there's been kind of a pendulum switch, switch, uh, move back where, you know, people are very supportive of police and they feel like, you know, you guys are all getting roped in for what Derek Chauvin did and, and that's a bad rap. 
And so the, but then that kind of creates this urban versus rural divide. The people in Minneapolis, there's still not by and large, a lot of trust in the Minneapolis mm -hmm. police department. They are just really struggling for numbers right now. So that creates, you know, unsolved crimes because they don't have the resources to put in to as much as they used to when they're down, you know, 50%. So it's, it's a, it's just a tough problem. Uh, St. Paul, the community has a better relationship with its police mm -hmm. department in St. Paul. So it's not quite as bad there. I don't know if you know this answer. How's the productivity of the police there? Is that like, I don't want to say slow down, but has it, um, maybe made a more hands-off approach? Like we're not dealing with this or no? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And slow down is, is a term that's, that's used a lot. And, uh, you know, it, there's a, there's a lot of resistance to, you know, I'm not going to put my neck out there because if something goes wrong, I'm going to be charged yeah. with murder. And I've, I've heard that from all my sources yeah, that are yeah, in law yeah, enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it's not, it's not just a one-off thing. And so that's, it's, it really stinks because um, they had a chief in Minneapolis named Madera Arredondo, who had this vision for, you know, prior to the, prior to George Floyd and prior to the pandemic of just improving the community policing and mm -hmm. just really the hands-on, you know, like get to know the kids, you know, before it, they fall into gangs and stuff like that. And really this proactive stuff. And there were a lot of people that wanted to buy into that after Derek Chauvin yes. killed George Floyd. It's like, okay, that's kind of out the window now. And it's like, there's, starting over from scratch, but they don't really know what scratch is yet. That's intense. Oof. One other thing, I just went on your website. What's with this Tech Mobile article? I I, did, <laughs> I just saw it right before you came on. I was you know, I was, I was in the uh, booth like two minutes before you came on. I clicked on your site and I just opened the article. How'd that come about? So when I was a kid on the old school Nintendo. Of course, man. The, the original game Tech Mobile. Yep. So there was the original Tech Mobile, the one that had um, Bo Jackson and Walter Payton in them. And then they made a sequel called Tecmo Super Bowl. And that's mm -hmm. actually the one that is, it's better gameplay. It has all yeah, the yeah. teams in the NFL. You can be the Buffalo Bills with Jim Kelly, whose name is actually QB Bills, and Thurman Thomas. And you can be the 49ers with Joe Montana. The Giants have um, Phil Simms. And, and the uh, Lawrence Taylor. Taylor. I remember Taylor yeah. on the field goal. You so able to fast. Block it. Yeah. So I, I was really good at that game growing up. And at a certain point, I found out that people still play it competitively. And when I moved to Buffalo, that's one of the cities where they actually have tournaments and it's still widely played. Oh, wow. So, you know, being in a city where we didn't know anybody, I made a lot of friends through this Tecmo Super Bowl community where guys would just get together. And it's like, I was the newsman. There was another guy who was the garbage man, you know, <laughs> another guy, you know, just, just complete random groups of people that we would get together and play this video game. And I thought to myself back then, I thought, you know, how cool would it be if I just became the best Tecmo Super Bowl player in the country? I quickly learned that that was never going to happen. So then I thought to myself, well, what, what could I, how could I leave my mark like on this community? And I thought, what if I tracked down the guys who created the game in Japan and interviewed them and wrote an article about the origins of the game? And Japan is a very hard place to communicate and find people uh, remotely right without a translator mm -hmm. and so it was it was a very difficult journey but i tracked down the two guys that made the game and interviewed them through a translator and wrote that article on it's called the fathers of tecmo super bowl which is on my website louragoose.com and it's it's funny because i'm like you know bo jackson was an awesome player but on tecmo bowl and tecmo super bowl he's way even better than he was in real life so then i'm like awesome how did you guys how, why did you make him so good and the answer to that is back then they didn't get NFL games on TV there. They would essentially get highlight tapes and they would watch highlight tapes. So they knew Bo was just Bo. Yep. They watched all the highlights of him running over um, Bosworth from the Seahawks, yeah. um, his great runs. And then they had these magazines that were tailored to the Japanese audience. And so they would get statistics from that and, and so forth. And they just went off of highlight videos and stats that they read in a magazine to make the game. I'm excited to read that. All right, ready to finish up with some quick hit questions. All right. You and I are at a bar here in New York City. You want to impress everybody. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Marv Levy, the coach, the former coach of the Buffalo Bills from the 1990s. What a good answer. That's a great answer. How do you have his number? From working in Buffalo, doing stories. Um, wow. You know, and, and I should couch it that he is getting older now, so I don't know how quick the text back would be. But Solid answer. Just one of the nicest guys I ever met, and he would always have time for anybody. I happen to just have his 
number in my phone. I like it. How about one sporting event in history you wish you could witness live? I guess I would say Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, which I did watch on TV live, but to be in Minneapolis at the Metrodome and the pitcher's duel between Jack Morris and John Smoltz from the Atlanta Braves goes into 10 innings. Gene Larkin gets a hit off of, uh, I believe it was uh, uh, chose a Charlie Lee branch. Who they, put, they put in a random reliever at the end, and the Twins won. Nice answer. How about this? 3.30 in the morning, give a few drinks. What's your go-to snack to eat? Peanut M&M's if I have them. <laughs> favorite show to binge watch? My favorite binge watch show of all time was Breaking Bad. Awesome show. I just actually watched it for the first time like a year ago, a year or two ago. It's insane. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, my wife and I are binge watching Suits. It's on I Netflix. It. Okay, is it's it good? It's not as good, but you know, you, you got to have something. Listen to me, Lou. This was an absolute blast. I hope you had fun. Plug the website, the Twitter, the book, everything else, please. Yeah, and I should add Seinfeld too. We oh, we Seinfeld, just watched, my we just watched it to wire to wire. It's my all-time favorite thing. I'm obsessed with it. They couldn't get away with half the jokes anymore, which is sad, but it's so good. All right, my name's Lou Raguse, and to get to my website, louragoose.com, you have to know how to spell it. So that's L-O-U-R-A-G-U-S-E.com. The book is called Vanish in Vermilion. I also have a website set up for that, which is just vanishedinvermilion.com. And when you're there, I have some uh, photographs behind the scenes. I would recommend reading the book first before going to the website. You can get all the behind the scenes stuff after you know the story. Twitter, I'm at Lou Raguse, my full name. And uh, for the most part, that's where you can find me. I also have a, I've started a, a sub stack, which is um, like a newsletter, which I keep updates on this book. And I also kind of use it as social media, you know, because uh, social media is always kind of evolving and people that are interested in my stories like to follow that. So if you just Google Lou, the newsman on Substack, you can find me there. Lou, this was an absolute blast. And I mean this too. I, my goal every year is to read a book a week and yours is one of the best books I've read in a long time. Cause I didn't know the story. So as I'm reading it and I'll just tell you quick, I'm like, on page 270, just say, and I'm like, we got the guy, we got him. Yeah. And then we don't have the guy when they drop charges. I'm like, how are we going to finish this book in the next 60 pages? So like you had me and I deal with all this crime stuff. You had me like what happens next. So that's how, you know, it was a great book, man. I just want to tell you, and I'm telling everyone about it. I'm like, you got to read this book. I just read, and I'm telling them the story. People are intrigued, man. So I just want to thank you for writing the book and writing it so messfully. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mike. And and you hit a good point there. It's like the people that listen to this podcast, they're going to know almost a little too much and, and that's fine. They're going to have to read it and then tell somebody else to read it without any spoilers. Cause yeah, that's yeah. kind of the fun thing is like <laughs> you share it with somebody who doesn't know anything about it. Now tell me what you think. What were you thinking when you got there? And and that's what I did. I, I just told my mom right before you came on, I go, mom, I told the two girls, 1971 cake party, right turn, left turn, never saw again. Guy arrested for murder. She's like, I'm all in. <laughs> so I'll let you know my mom thinks, brother. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Well, have a good day, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.